0: chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 12 through 20. From verse 12 to the end of the chapter,
1: verse 20. So, Jim. James, chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath But your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain on the earth. The sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We're coming
0: now to the concluding portion of this letter that James wrote to these Jewish Christians. Uh, Jewish Christian groups that had been dispersed uh, because of persecution, dispersed out of Jerusalem because of the persecution there. And he's dealt with many things in this book that have demonstrated what authentic faith is all about. That's kind of the key phrase that I've brought up a number of times. Authentic faith. That's what James is talking about. And he's brought up a number of things that show what authentic is like authentic faith is like but now when we get to verse 12 he says but above all but above all now i think this is his way of saying these are my final exhortations so the phrase above all includes not just what he's saying here in verse 12 but really this whole final section. That's why I had Jim read the whole, whole section here. Uh, in other words, what he's doing here is presenting to us some things that he considers to be of primary importance or for us to especially consider as he's closing this letter. And so what's the first major thing that he brings up? Well, when we read verse 12, we say, Why is this so important? I mean, at least that's what I did. But above all, my brethren, do not swear. Is that that the normal thing you'd think of in terms of... Now, this is really, really important for Christians. Well, it was to James, and I hope we can see why here. Um, Of course, swearing has to do with our speech. And speech is something he's definitely dealt with a great deal... In the book, let me just remind you here, in, ver- in chapter one, verse nine or nineteen, he says, "This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak." So he starts right out and say, says we should be slow to speak, and then he says, a little bit later, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, his uh, but deceives his own heart. His religion is in vain. So, bridling the tongue. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, So speak and so act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. So again, talking about speaking and acting. And then chapter 3, well, almost the whole chapter deals with the tongue. I mean, it's one of the most uh, scathing indictments of of wrong speech that you have in all of Scripture. So, we, we looked at that. Uh, a number of times. And then chapter 4, he talked in verse 11, uh, he says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks against the law. So, uh, again, speaking, so important, the tongue. And then chapter 5, verse 9, Do not complain, brethren, against one another. So he's, he's emphasized this thing of the tongue over and over again. The way we use our tongue is a true test of authentic faith. That's what uh, I think he wants us to get a hold of here. It indicates our spiritual state. The way we use our tongue indicates really what's down there in our heart. It indicates what our spiritual state is. So here again then in this one verse, verse 12, and that's all we're going to get to today. Um, he brings up this issue of our speech, specifically this area of swearing. My brethren, do not swear, he says. So first we we need to understand what he's prohibiting when he says do not swear. This is not a pronouncement against profanity, dirty words, vulgarity, or impure speech. That's not what he's talking about here. Of course, these things are wrong, And we need to be very careful and cautious in those type of things. But that's not what he's dealing with here. What he's dealing with here is the subject of oaths. Oaths. And you can see that if you read the rest of the verse. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. So when he's talking about swearing, he's talking about taking or making oaths. Um, swearing as James is dealing with it has to do with oath taking a person takes an oath to reinforce the truth of something something he said that's why you would make an oath to reinforce the truth of something you said or to bind himself to a future course of action so the question is why is this so important to James Why, why why does he say above all Do not swear. Well, I think we need to realize that swearing, this thing of oath taking, was a major part of ancient life. And the reason for that was and is why? Because people are liars, because people are dishonest, because people won't tell the truth. In fact, the world thrives on lies. That was true in the ancient world, and that's true for us today. We know from ancient history that this thing of oath-taking was common, even in the false religions of that day. Oaths were common because lies were common. And I have to say, you know, things haven't changed too much. We can talk about the ancient world, but in this area, things have not changed very much. Uh, I just think if we could really discern all the lies and deceptions that come at us each day, we would be appalled. Uh, I couldn't help but think of the, the mail I get these days because we're in an election period. The things that come in the mail are incredible. Well, Dishonesty of speech is so widespread, and was so widespread, that some safeguard was needed to try to secure truthfulness. And that safeguard was the oath, taking an oath, making an oath. So the Bible has much to say about oaths. They were a big part of Jewish life. The Old, Old Testament concept of oath-taking had to do with invoking some higher authority to strengthen the reliability of what a person said. Invoking some higher authority to strengthen the reliability of what you said. Now, I wanted to read a little quote here from John MacArthur. He had a commentary on this section of Scripture. And he points out that the Old Testament oath involved three areas of thought. First of all, he says it was... A, It was attesting to the truth of a statement. And then it was calling for God to witness. And then thirdly, invoking God's punishment if you violated your word. To say, I swear to God, man, I want you to know I'm telling the truth. I want God to witness I'm telling the truth. And I want God to punish me if I'm not telling the truth. So oath-taking was a serious thing. You were invoking the curse of God on you if you lied in in an effort to convince somebody that you were really telling the truth. This was a very solemn thing, oath-taking. Now we're going to look at a number of scriptures and we'll see that Jesus had quite a bit to say about this subject of making or taking an oath. He dealt with it in a number of places because what had happened in his time, probably happened long before this, but what had happened is the whole thing of oath-making and taking had become an actual way of deception. In other words, this area of speech that was supposed to make for honesty had been turned into a dishonest way of life for the Jews. They had constructed a complex system of swearing by way, by way uh, whereby some things that they swore by were binding and some things were not. That's what's being referred to even in this verse, where it says, Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other thing. There's a big system that they built up. They had developed an elaborate system of binding and non-binding oaths. Now, what was apparently happening here with these new Jewish converts to Christianity, they brought some of this perversion of oath-taking into their newfound faith in Christ. You might ask, how could that be? I mean, they became Christians. You know how it could be? It's the same way that you and I brought some baggage in when we became Christians you don't see some of these things right off especially if it's part of your culture it's part of your your family makeup your culture your country this was the way the Jews were functioning at the time and a lot of us come in we see some of our sin we repent of that but as you go along down the road you start to see wait a minute I've, I've been deceiving myself here I've got this whole area that I just kind of took for granted and it's not even right well, James was saying that's that's what was happening with some of these Jewish converts. Um, I was thinking how Paul put it in Colossians. I'll just read this to you. He says this in Colossians three eight. But now you also put them all aside: anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from the tongue. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. What's he saying? Put this stuff aside. They're Christians. They've made this profession of faith. They've, they know the Lord. He says, now, you need to have your mind renewed. You need to see here what that all involves. And some of, it, uh, some of what it involved for these new... Jewish Christians was they had to leave aside this whole system that they'd grown up in of oath-taking. So we need to progressively lay aside things as God reveals them to us. James is saying, all right, you've grown up in this, but this whole attitude towards oath-taking, that's part of the culture you're coming out of, is wrong. Stop making these oaths and let your spirit... Be straightforward and honest. That's what he's saying. He's saying, Let your yes be yes and your no, no. If you don't do this, he says, if your words aren't trustworthy, you will come under judgment. And we'll talk about that uh, in just a moment. So I think this whole subject, you know, it's kind of foreign to us, really. So I want to t- take just a little time on this. Uh, I think it'll become clearer as we look at some of the scriptures. And uh, the first place that I want to make reference to, you don't need to turn to it, it's, it's the Ten Commandments. Because the Lord says in Exodus 27, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, taking the Lord's name in vain involves many things, and let me just give you a few, ideas, a few thoughts here. It would be to use his name in a light, flippant manner that would be taking his name in vain or to use his name as a curse word that's certainly taking his name in vain or blaspheming his name or using it in a deceptive way now we're getting closer to what we're talking about today using it in a deceptive way or in any way dragging down the name of God would be taking his name in vain it's it's using his name in an improper or unholy way and as we've said, this was happening in many instances where an oath was taken in God's name or taken in the name of some object that was related to God. But not all oath-taking was wrong. You see oaths in the Old Testament quite, quite often. Let me just, uh, well, let's turn to this first one, uh, Genesis 24. Here's Abraham. And he is wanting a wife for his his son. So he's going to send his servant off to find a wife. He's an old man. I get the picture here. so He's so old he can't get out of bed. Anyway, in chapter 24, verse 2, And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh. Now, I don't know why... Why that was, and maybe it was so decrepit he couldn't even get up and uh, shake it. And, you know, do I don't know if they did handshakes back then or not, but it was some type of significant thing here. Uh, place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live so he's sending off this servant and he he makes him take an oath and down in verse uh, 9 it says so the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter so there's just one oath And as you read through the Old Testament you see uh, many of the uh, Old Testament uh, patriarchs and, and persons that are uh, important in the Old Testament, making oaths. Isaac made an oath. Jacob made an oath. David made oaths. Many, many oaths in the Old Testament. Sometimes God actually called for this. Let's turn to Exodus 22. 10 and 11. This just has to do with some individuals' uh, situations here. If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, an ox, a sheep or any animal to keep for him, and it dies or is hurt or is driven away while no one is looking, an oath before the Lord shall be made by the two of them that he was not, that he has not laid hands on his neighbor's property, and its owner shall accept it. And he shall not make restitution. In other words, if something happened, no fault of your own, uh, you lost this animal that you were supposed to keep track of. Well, he said, God said, make an oath that you didn't take this from me. You didn't steal it. You didn't. Dep- you're not depriving me of anything. And then, then you don't have to make restitution. So, uh, that's just an example. Deuteronomy six thirteen. You don't need to turn to this. Says this: You shall fear only the Lord your God. "...and shall worship Him and swear by His name." So a command, not to swear by any other false gods or anything, but to swear by the Lord God, the true God. Levit- Leviticus 19:11 and 12, "...you shall not steal, nor deal falsely, falsely nor lie to one another. You shall not, shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of the, God, the Lord your God, I am the Lord." Uh, I'm just reading a few examples here. Uh, Numbers thirty one and 2. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So just... uh, oaths were part of their culture and God recognized that and used them and even commanded them in some instances sometimes the whole nation of, of Israel or Judah would make an oath you see that in 2nd Chronicles 15 14 and 15 let me just uh, don't need to turn to it but this was a time of, of uh, really revival and reform under King Asa and the nation actually promised that they would seek the Lord and in that promise it says this Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, and with horns. All Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly. And he let them find him, so the Lord gave them rest on every side. So here's the whole nation swearing or making an oath before the Lord that they were going to follow the Lord. So... I hope we see that oaths were part of this culture, and God made it part of the culture because of the fact of dishonesty and and uh, the need for that type of thing. But they were only to be used on rare solemn occasions, and certainly not entered into lightly or thoughtlessly. Uh, they were to be done as we've read here in the fear of the Lord. Now, the Old Testament also gives us some examples. Of oaths that were made in a rash manner, or in a foolish manner, foolish vows. I won't. Uh, we won't look those up this morning. I'm, you probably are aware of some of these. Um, but let me just quote Ecclesiastes 4 or 5:4 to you. This says, "When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow." It is, better for you that you, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God it was a mistake. Uh, I didn't really mean that, you know. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So, hasty, thoughtless vows before God were a form of taking the Lord's name in vain. Now here's I think really an amazing thing and that is that on a number of occasions God himself makes a vow takes an oath Hebrews 6.13 tells us for when God made promise to Abraham since he could swear by no one greater he swore by himself saying I shall surely bless you and I will surely multiply you God couldn't swear by anything greater because there's nothing greater than God. Nothing or anything is greater. So he swore by himself. It says, "By myself I have sworn." If you look that up in Genesis 22:16, that's that's what it says. "By myself I have sworn." Another way God would swear by himself is expressed in the little phrase, As I live, saith the Lord. You find that a number of times in the Old Testament. As I live, saith the Lord. Well, you might ask the question, why would God use an oath? I mean, here's the all-perfect one, all-holy one, all-righteous one. Why would he ever need to make an oath? Well, he didn't need to. But he was, I I think he was condescending. That is, coming down to man's level in order to help man trust him, in order to help people trust him. Like I said, he did not need to make an oath because he was totally trustworthy and everything. But he made oaths because he knew sinful men depended on them. He did this, in other words, for the benefit of man, not to strengthen his word, but to strengthen their faith. it was, a, In other words, it was a gracious act on his part to help people to believe him. If we come over to the New Testament, we find Paul making some oaths, making some vows on various occasions. That seemed appropriate. The Bible never said that it was wrong that he did this. Uh, Acts 18, 18... 2 Corinthians 11:31. 31. We won't look them up now. But in the New Testament, we also see this thing of rash, foolish, and sinful oaths. Let me just give you a couple examples here. When Peter denied Christ right before the crucifixion, when that servant girl said, you're one of them, he denied it. It says he denied it with an oath. One one. One of the scriptures says he cursed and swore. I used to think, boy, he must have been using bad language. No, that's not what that means. It means he was making oaths, saying, I I don't know the man. So, a sinful oath there by Peter. Herod the king did this when he swore to Herodias' daughter. You remember the girl that danced before him? He was so caught up in this dance, partly because he was drunk, I think, that he said, he vowed, you can ask anything of me, even up to half my kingdom. Well, she asked for the head of John the Baptist. And because he'd made this oath, this foolish, rash, sinful oath, that's what happened. John, John was murdered because of a foolish, sinful oath. And then you have the example of Paul's enemies who put themselves under an oath to put him to death. Well, those are just a few examples of the wrong, uh, uh, rash or foolish oaths. But I want to look closer at what James is actually forbidding here in this verse that we're looking at. And Jesus helps us understand this in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 33 Again you have heard that the ancients were told You shall not make false vows But shall fulfill your vows to the Lord But I say to you, make no oath at all Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God Or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. And anything beyond these is evil. What we see here James doing, that he does so many times in in this book, is he's echoing the words, of Christ. It's, it's so similar. It seems that what was happening is that some of these Jewish people, especially the Pharisees, were avoiding using God's name when they made an oath, but instead used some object they thought was associated with his name. And they'd set up a system of oaths which were more or less binding according to what they swore by. What it amounted to was that you could make an oath that would sound good but actually disguise dishonesty. You made an oath that sounded, you know, somehow this thing you swear by is associated with God some way. But some of the things they said, well, that doesn't count. And some of the things that said, well, yeah, that's binding. And so what they were doing is, is coming up with a way of saying things that sounded good but actually disguised dishonesty. You didn't need to do what you promised unless it was sworn by a certain formula. You know, it had to be by this or that, not by this or that. And this is so like the Pharisees as we see them presented in the, in the New Testament. They were focusing their attention on an outward external thing, the right form of the oath, instead of the real purpose of the oath, which was trustworthiness. See, they missed the heart of the whole thing, looking at the external. And this is what Pharisee, this is what they were noted for doing. So Jesus specifically called out the scribes and the Pharisees on this. Let's turn to Matthew 23. you got to remember that this is easy for us to see it was but they were immersed in this it'd been going on for centuries and so you know it, it took the words of Christ to come in and just kind of prick the bubble and say pop this is a this is a evil this is wrong don't you see what you're doing well that's what he's telling these pharisees here Matthew 23:16 through 22 woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple that is nothing but whoever swears by the gold of the temple he's obligated you fools and blind men which is more important the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold and whoever swears by the altar that's nothing but whoever swears by the offering upon it he's obligated you blind men Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, he who swears, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple, swears by both the temple and by him who dwells within it. And he who swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits on the throne. So again, they had these certain vows that were binding and that sounded very similar. But they had others that weren't binding and they were using those in deceptive ways. Now when you read that and think about it, it, all, it sounds pretty childish actually. It's like the child that says, well, I had my fingers crossed. <laughs> but Jesus didn't think it was childish. He said it was the act of a fool and a blind man. They were foolish because any possible thing they swore by belonged to God ultimately. And everything anyone says is always done before the eye of God. And everyone is accountable for every word before Him. You can't come up with these systems. This counts and that doesn't count. So that's a, that, that shows great spiritual blindness to do that type of thing. So Jesus says then in the Sermon on the Mount that your yes be yes and your no no and anything beyond that is of evil or of the evil one. And that's exactly what James says except he says so that you may not fall under judgment. So what are we to conclude from all these scriptures? We've taken some time to look just at least briefly here at this subject of oaths in the Old and New Testament. What do we to conclude from all this? Well, the Quakers and some Anabaptist groups concluded that they should not take or make any oaths ever. I actually was pretty close to being a Quaker and an Anabaptist about the time that Renee and I got married because I'd been studying through the Sermon on the Mount and said, Make no oath at all. That settles that. So, I said at our wedding we weren't having vows. We were going to make statements of commitment, (laughs) (laughs) which is another name for a vow. (laughs) And I've actually backed off from that uh, a little bit because I think that on some rare and serious occasions an oath is permissible. Uh, Certainly not any flippant or foolish or fraudulent swearing oaths. But, for instance, when would an oath be permissible? Well, some of the solemn occasions where it might not be wrong to take an oath or make a vow would be like making an oath of office, for instance, or wedding vows, or if you're called to take an oath in a court of law. See, those aren't things generally that you are initiating except a a wedding vow, but you recognize this as a solemn occasion before God and something that uh, is binding and you want to present it that way. But the main point of what Jesus is saying and, and what James is saying, I think, is just this that our speech should always be straightforward, clear, and honest. That's, that's the real heart of what James and Jesus are both talking about here. What we say should be trustworthy. People should recognize integrity in what we do and what we say. The absolute dependability of our words should make an oath unnecessary. As one of the old Puritans said, the life of an honest man is an oath. It should be enough for people to hear, for people to hear us say yes or no to something. Not a, we, don't, we shouldn't have to add I promise or I swear because they, they know what we say is what we'll do. Children, that means, you know, you don't say, I cross my heart. People should know that you're honest. The fact is, if we have to appeal often to oaths, we're saying that our normal conversation can't be trusted. Our mere words should be as trustworthy as a signed document stamped by a notary. If if you tell me something, it should be just the same as if you just wrote it out and had it notarized. Anything beyond simple honesty is from the evil one, the father of lies. Now, as I said when we started out here, the world doesn't function like this. Why is that? It's because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He's a father of lies. But the church of God should be and is different than that. It must be. We must recognize our conversation as always sacred, as always before God. See, that was part of the oath thing. You're saying, I'm saying this before God. Everything we say is before God. Always. We should always speak as under oath because we're always under God. What's that mean? That means if I say I'm going to do something, I better do it. If I say I'm going to be somewhere, I should be there. I make an appointment i should be there we should be accurate about what we say we should be dependable in business we think about this but i'm we're talking about at school we're talking about at home you don't come into some different realm just because you're at home one person said honesty in little things is not a little thing. If you're not going to be honest in little things, you won't be honest in the big things either. Well, he says here in James, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now again, we're we're talking about something serious here. You see, if we take, if we don't take this position of absolute honesty, if lies and exaggerations and sensational stories and distortions and that type of thing, half truths are predominant in our speech. He says there's going to be judgment for that type of person. This word judgment at the end of verse 12 is the same word that he used back in chapter 2 and verse 13. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So when he's saying judgment here, he's talking, I think, in any way that he's talking about the final judgment which will result in the punishment of unrepentant sinners. Now, he's talking, he says, above all my brethren, and then he brings up judgment. Is it proper to bring up judgment in relationship to brethren? Yes, it is. He just did it. I know it's proper. So we can't just say, well, that's for, that's for the lost person. There will be a day of judgment. There will be a day of reckoning. We will come before the judgment seat of Christ. And on that day, we'll have to render account, the scripture says, of every idle word. The things we've done in secret, the things we've said in secret. We'll stand before him, this one who judges the thoughts and intents of the heart, the Bible tells us. And nothing will be hidden from him. So this, this is a solemn thing here we're talking about. Yeah. This thing of oaths, but as I said, our whole life should be an oath. We're always before the eye and ear of God. So, again, the question, why would James give such a strong warning here? Especially to professing Christians. Here's the reason, I think. Because he's talking about a lifestyle of lying. And lying of the worst kind, religious lying. That's what the Pharisees were doing. But Don't just push it off to the Pharisees. We're talking to everyone here, myself included. He's talking about a lifestyle of lying, religious lying. Lying done in the name of God. James is telling us that authentic faith is totally incompatible with a dishonest life. Authentic faith is totally incompatible with this type of lifestyle we're talking about here, of dishonesty. If you use religion to cover a deceptive life, you will certainly fall under judgment. Let me read you a few verses here from the book of Revelation. 21, 7 and 8 says, He who overcomes, that means he who has authentic faith, he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, they will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. This is the second death. All liars. Again, in Revelation 21:27, this is speaking of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. John says, Nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then, why don't we all look this one up? Revelation 22. This brings out the point I'm trying to make. Revelation 22. And verse 15, outside, that is outside the city, outside the New Jerusalem, are the dogs and the sorcerers and immoral persons and murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. And I would underline loves and practices. We're talking about a pattern of life here. It's not going to go well for that person when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ if loving and practicing lies is, is a way of life, is what you're, the way you've lived. On the other hand, if we know the truth and love the truth, Speaking the truth will be the pattern of our life. Now, we may stumble in this on occasion. Remember James says back in his chapter on the tongue, we all stumble in many ways. And he he brings up specifically in, in our speech. But you see, that's different than loving and practicing lying. The scribes and Pharisees, although they looked so good on the surface, loved and practiced, practiced lying. And this oath, these things of oaths, the way they'd worked them up, worked them out, was one area they were doing that. That's why Jesus said to them, you serpents, you brood of vipers, you snakes, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? But we could paraphrase that and say, how could anyone who loves and practices lying escape the The judgment of hell the sentence of hell so what we have here in this one verse is another test of authentic faith are we truthful people that's the test that's the test that James would have us as he brings up this subject of oath taking and and swearing the real issue is are we truthful people or are we using religion to disguise a basically deceptive lifestyle are we pretending to be righteous making believe we're following the way of truth when we're actually living a lie may God keep us from using words that sound good that actually disguise dishonesty. May He cause us to be truthful, trustworthy followers of His Son. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath but let your yes be yes and your no no so that you may not fall under judgment well we'll take up from there next time and look at some of these other things that james wants to emphasize as he's concluding his letter thought I should just put this little postscript on here. I'm not wanting to bring any false condemnation on anyone, but I do want to exhort us all, don't live a lie. Don't live a lie. Honesty has been purchased for us in Christ. If we're his followers, he will work that in us. That's for sure. Because he's conforming us to the image of Christ. He'll bring honesty to all his people. Well, why don't we close in prayer?